We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something that both started before us and reaches beyond us. This summer, we look to the entire Bible to see God's mission in the world and how He calls His people to join Him in it. As we as a church look to beginning a new congregation, we turn towards the scriptures to see how God moves us out on mission. Join us this summer for a missional conversation. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 9. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. The text is in your order of worship. That's this thing. If you don't own a Bible, we have some on the back table we would love to give you. It's our gift to you, but however you can have the text in front of you, as we always say, uh, it's going to be good. If, um, if we're just hearing helpful thoughts from Rick, that's not going to help anybody. So it's good for us to know where it's coming from, okay? So I said uh, last week, and I kind of re-mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, we're kind of winding up our series uh, called Missional Conversations by looking at specifics when it comes to the mission of Christians, the mission of the church. So we have, we've spent most of the summer trying to get across this idea that um, helping people encounter Jesus, know Jesus, and show Jesus is central to the Bible. And last week we looked at what, that me- what is the message that we're here to take to help others do just that. That was part of uh, what we looked at. This week we turn to the issue of how exactly we do this. Because that's really important. Um, I, I don't know that any Christians uh, would, would uh, argue with the, the fact that helping people come to know Jesus is probably central to what the church is about. But we all differ to some degree on how exactly we're supposed to do that. One option is, of course, to have a worship service and just kind of to expect people to come in and figure stuff out. That's one option that's popular, especially in, in the world in which we believe that coming to church on Sunday is a normal cultural expectation, which it isn't any longer. There was a time where that was true. That's no longer the case. Uh, and then, of course, as they come in, we can kind of just expect them to figure stuff out. But that isn't exactly what we see in the Bible well, we see, we, we see the gospel of Jesus being taken to different groups of people in languages and trappings that they would understand. It's a strategy that, in fact, mirrors our Lord, uh, mirrors what Jesus did. So if you have your place in 1 Corinthians 9, if you'd stand, that's our habit here in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading verses 19 to 22. As we do so, let me remind us that this is God's word uh, it, if you've been to Christian churches before, if you've been to churches at all, you, you know that it's very common to read the Bible before you begin, uh, but, but it's easy to let it pass over you what this book is, what these words are. These are not the words of people who came up with good, helpful things to say. They're the words of God himself, and so they lay claim on us. So let's hear it in that way. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come into your presence, 
uh, called by you, bidden to come by you. We ask for your blessing on this time. We pray that you would open our ears and our eyes, our ears to hear from you, our eyes to see you. And most importantly, whether we're coming into this place uh, having been Christians for a long time or whether we're coming into this place uh, still trying to figure out what we think about Jesus, I pray that you would open all of our hearts to receive you. To not look at dependence on you as something to be shunned, but in fact something to be welcomed, enjoyed, and delighted in. For you are a God who delights in the dependence of his people. And so, Lord, would you speak to us now? Show us the glory of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Have a seat. Maybe this is something that's happened to you, uh, maybe not, but it has happened to me. So several years ago, um, I bought a new grill. I like to grill. Some of you know that. You've been to my 4th of July parties. You know that I love to grill. So I bought a new grill. It's very eager for it. I got it home, um, opened it up, took all the parts out. Uh, I got my tools, looked at the directions, and I was stopped in my tracks because the directions were in Spanish. And unfortunately, when, when that happened, I, I, a couple of things happened. First and foremost, I got angry at the company. Why did they put these directions in here? And then I got angry at myself because I took four years of German in high school and haven't used it a day since. Uh, I wanted my grill. I went to the trouble of getting it, but I couldn't understand how exactly to put it together. Now, the reality is I figured it out. It's not exactly rocket science. It's like a barrel with a cage at the bottom and legs. Like, it's not rocket science. So I figured it out. I was motivated to do so. The point of all this is that this is often how we approach taking the gospel to people. We kind of, uh, we, we, we are kind of hoping that folks are going to be motivated enough to overcome what is probably to them, to, to, and if we would remember far enough back, to us even back then, a foreign language But we're hoping that they're going to be motivated enough to kind of figure it out. But Paul in this passage shows us something very different. Something that has more to do with becoming like others than it does with trying to get them to become like us. So we're going to look at this passage in two ways this morning. Um, If if you want to follow your outline, that's great. We're going to look at we're going to look at uh, strategic context and then changing context. Okay, strategic context and changing context. And what we're going to see is this. That an identity rooted in Jesus frees you to lay aside lesser identities to help others encounter Jesus. That if your identity is rooted in Jesus, it helps you to lay aside lesser identities to help others encounter him. Okay? So let's look, let's look at this passage right now. Before I do, let me mention this. You, you know what was one of my earliest questions when I first became a Christian? Maybe you can remember this. Uh, you can remember how weird this is. Um, when I first started reading the Bible, I didn't understand what these names of the different parts of the Bible mean, right? I mean, if you've been a Christian a long enough time, you probably take for granted that when you say 1 Corinthians, you know what that means, right? Uh, it's really weird. Why is there a 1 in front of this? Why is there a 2? Well, uh, it's simply this. First, what 1 Corinthians means is that it's the first letter of Paul, the apostle, to the church in Corinth, which was a city um, in what is now Greece, um, and, and, and if there is a one in front of it, there's at least a two, right? So you have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And uh, later you're going to have 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And then John, he was apparently very prolific because he has three letters after him, okay? 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So, um, so that's, that's what those mean. Now, the Corinthians had a ton of issues. That church was messed 
up. But one of the main ones revolved around the issue of rights. What are we to do with our rights as Christians, our individual rights? And how should they play off when you have other people's rights? Uh, Which issue is preeminent specifically in this letter? Paul wants to talk about this. Which issue should be preeminent? My freedom or love? My freedom or love? So in chapter 9, as we're jumping into the middle of it, Paul is putting on display all of his rights and talking about how he laid them aside for the sake of the gospel. Now he explains why. So look down at verse 19, because there's his intention. He says, For though I am free from all, I made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Okay? So when Paul says, I'm free from all, what he means is that I don't owe anyone anything. I don't owe anybody anything. Uh, This is important because there's a difference between what Paul is talking about in this passage and pandering. Right? Some of us, when we heard this, we thought of pandering because we're in the political season. That's what politicians do, right? They, they try and put on the guise of whatever group they're speaking to so that they can get something from them. They want their vote. It's an economic relationship. But that's not what Paul's doing. By free here, he means he's under no obligation. He's under no obligation to anyone because he doesn't need anything from them. And so he says, I have made myself a servant of all. Now, if you've been here at Holy Cross for a while, you've probably heard me say this a bunch of times, but when most of our English translations in the New Testament translate a word and it says servant, that word actually is better translated slave. But because of our cultural history and the fact that most English Bibles are sold in America, we, we have to put servant because we're afraid of the, of the weight that comes with that word. But it means slave. Okay, So Paul is saying that though he is under no obligation to anyone, he has enslaved himself to all. So the important thing as we listen to that is Paul's uh, part in it. It's intentional. What he is doing is intentional. He hasn't been enslaved to all. He enslaved himself to all, though he was under no obligation from anyone. And then he gets to his reason, right? Though I am free from all, I have made myself servant of all, that, and if you have your own Bible, underline that word that, because that shows us this is the purpose. This is the reason right here, that I might win more of them. So why did he make himself a slave of all? Why did, he, why did he go about this thing that we're about to see? He did it to win more people. And so when we see that word win, that points us to the fact that what he's talking about is not accommodating fellow believers. He's talking about doing something to see other people come to become believers. He's speaking of those not yet in the faith. He's not accommodating Christians. He's trying to reach non-Christians. Do you see that? It doesn't mean kind of... Uh, kind of making, it doesn't seem, it's not about making them friends, it's about bringing them from one column to another, from non-Christian to Christian. This is the whole point of what he's talking about. So don't miss his intention here. Paul is making intentional choices of how he's going to act, how he's going to be, that directly come from a desire to see others know Jesus. So this is great. This kind of leads us into like, okay, if this is what the Apostle Paul, the, the, one of Jesus' first followers and probably the, uh, the, the guy who more than anyone else like, helped spread the, 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 spread the faith, spread Christianity throughout the Roman world, this is what he did. That should give us a, a, a point of, okay, we need, to, we need to listen. So now let's look at the strategy. Look down at verses 20 to 22. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I'm not myself under the law. 
that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now stop there, because this is, this is extraordinary. Uh, so listen close if you can. That first one, if you have any experience with the Bible, that first one should rock you. Because Paul is a Jew. He's Jewish. He was born in Tarsus to Jewish parents. He can trace his lineage to the tribe of Benjamin. He is, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is as Jewish as you can get, according to Paul in Philippians. In fact, he was even educated at the feet of a a, a rabbi named Gamaliel in Jerusalem. So how does a Jewish person say to the Jew, I became as if a Jew? That, That seems nonsensical, right? It simply means this. Something has happened to Paul in which his Jewishness took a back seat such that he could say, I had to become like Jews to win Jews. So that's the first one. The next one's interesting, under the law. Now, most scholars believe that when Paul says under the law, he simply means another way of saying Jewish. Um, So it could mean that when he says Jewish, he means culturally one, one who has a lineage that he can trace, whereas under the law means a practicing one. uh, Because, I don't know if you knew this, in the first century, like today, not all people who claim a particular faith are actually practicing that faith. A lot of them just claim it. Um, Either way, it means about the same. What Paul is talking about, about being under the law, When he says that uh, as one under the law, I became under the law, though I'm not under the law. What he's not talking about, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments as if God suddenly like changed his mind on what was good and what wasn't. What he means about being under the law is being under certain aspects of Old Testament law that provided um, boundary markers between who are the people of God and who aren't. Specifically in that you see going over again and again and again in the New Testament are things like diet, what food you should eat. Uh, things like the, what was in the Old Testament, the covenant sign of circumcision, ceremonial washings, things like that. So what it basically means is that Paul was okay putting aside his freedom to eat bacon if it would get in the way of other people hearing the gospel. Or he would put aside certain cultural and religious rituals and, and, and begin doing them if he helped him to win Jews. Okay? So that's the Jews and the under the law, now the outside of the law. What he means by outside the law is Gentiles. In other words, everyone else. Remember, in the first century, in a Jewish worldview, you're either a Jew or a Gentile. There's no middle ground. There's no other group. There's Jews and Gentiles. And so um, what he is saying here is the cultural trappings of another group can be taken up so that helps others come to know Jesus. And now Paul is clear on this because he had been accused of something. That when he says, I'm outside of the law, he doesn't mean like, that doesn't mean I've thrown out God's law or that it's no longer good, or anything like that. He's not outside of God's law. He says, I'm under the law of Christ, which can be super confusing. Because a lot of times, Jesus isn't exactly seen as a lawgiver, is he? That's not the way we view Jesus. Jesus is uh, Birkenstocks and robes. Like, that's, that's who Jesus is. We don't see him as this, like, lawgiver. But what he's talking about here is that there are governors for this whole str- strategy, there are governors, there are, there are boundary markers, there are certain things with which we can't exactly go in. And, and what, what it means is this, the law of Christ is basically what Jesus says sums up the whole law. To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. Or, as he said later, 
here, here's, here's the one that needs to govern your behavior. Love one another as I have loved you. Love others as I have loved you. And so what Paul is saying, or rather what he is not saying, is that God's law and his word don't matter. He isn't saying that he dumped the law so that he could become one outside it. Okay? He's saying, instead, though I'm under the law of Christ, I could become as one who's outside of it, as one who's never heard it, as one who doesn't understand these other things that are going on. Okay. Last one, the weak person. I love this because we have a, a really weird view of what this means. In our normal cultural parlance, if, you're, if, you've been a, if you've been a Christian, been in an evangelical church a while, the weak person in your mind is the person who um, doesn't know God's word very well. So they don't know the right rules to keep. Right? That's what we think, right? The weak person is that person who just doesn't, they don't quite get the right rules to keep. Well, in 1 Corinthians, it's actually, it's actually the opposite. In 1 Corinthians, the weak person is the one with the overactive conscience. The one who's got all these provisos of peccadilloes about everything. The one who, who's constantly looking over their shoulder because of guilt. That so often avoids anything that could even come close to something bad, quote unquote, and who probably wouldn't listen to you if they thought you had come close to something bad. Right? So what we're talking about here is someone who, who is, has an overactive conscience and probably presents as really self-righteous. Here's the dirty little secret about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is really fear with a clean little mask on it. Self-righteousness is a mask to hide the fear of people seeing how messed up we are. Or the fear of God getting us. Paul says, I was willing to live with an intense, overactive conscience so I could win those that had the same. Even though he's free. He's free. I, I, he's, he's like, look, I'm in, I'm in Jesus. Like, I don't have to perform to get God's, uh, get God's approval. I don't have to go through all these religious rituals to get God's approval. Like, Jesus has made me right with him. So the strategy is this. I will take the shape of whoever I want to reach. Did you hear me on that? That's the strategy. I will take the shape of whoever I want to reach so that I can reach them. I will do everything I can to get rid of any possible barrier. The way we talk about it in here is that if you're a first-time visitor here, I hope this was the case for you. Maybe it wasn't. Um, But we talk about it like this. The gospel, the New Testament says the gospel, the central message of Christianity is, is offensive. Which means that as I'm up here, uh, it's kind of my job, right? To speak the gospel, and which, is, which may offend us. Sometimes offends me. But everything else, when you come into this place, what we want to say is we want to remove every other possibility of offense. We want to remove every possibility of offense so that what is supposed to offend, what we are supposed to hear, we can I will take the shape of whoever I want to reach. If they listen to a certain kind of music, so will I. If they speak a certain kind of language, so will I. If they dress a certain way, maybe I should too. I will lay aside my comfort and what is normal for me so that I can reach them. So that I can win them. Now, let's look at the goal. Verse 21 says, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. That is the goal. 
I have become all things to all people so that in all ways I might save some. Now, some of you are thinking like, dude, Paul's theology is all messed up. Paul didn't save anybody. He knows that, right? He knows that. He wrote that. So that's not what he's trying to say. He, he doesn't mean that his strategy reconciles people to God. And at the same time, he knows what we said last week or a couple weeks ago, right? No, it was last week. You, you can't believe in someone that you've never heard of, and you can't hear unless someone preaches, right? So here's what this means. The save language that he talks about here reiterates what we've heard in this verse five times. There there are four verses here, and five times he says the word win. I'm trying to win, win, win people, win people, win people. The goal of what Paul is doing is to see people become Christians. And to do that, he is willing to put aside what he sees as preferences. Let me say that again. Because what Paul is not trying to do is to make sure that people think Christians are cool or that he's cool or culturally relevant. What he's trying to do is to see people become Christians and he's willing to put aside everything that he sees as a preference to do that. Now, some of you are like, well, that's fine. I mean, Paul was a missionary, church planner, whatever you want to call him. What does that have to do with me? Well, remember, Paul's not writing this letter to a church planter. He does that. It's called First and Second Timothy and Titus. Um, he does it then. Nor is he writing this letter to a missionary society. He's writing it to a church. And this church has really messed this up. And so he's using his own example to show them how this is supposed to play out. Okay? You with me? Good. Now, let's, let's, um, that's all well and good. But let me move to changing context so that we can make this a bit more applicable. First, by shifting identity. What we see here in Paul, what you see here as you're, as you're reading, is remarkable. Remarkable, probably more so because of where he's come from, because of the fact that before he became a Christian, because Paul wasn't always a Christian, in fact, he hunted down Christians, drug them to jail, killed some of them. Like we know that what he was zealous for was the particulars that he just said, I, I don't care about those. So we need to make sense of this, because being able to, to make sense of this implies that There's an identity that Paul has that transcends culture, doesn't it? Because it's not that Paul's laying aside identity. He's saying, like, I shift like a chameleon. I can be whoever you want me to be. Again, that's pandering. It's just that his identity is bigger than just a culture, bigger than a religious custom, bigger than his comfort. Here's, Here's where this comes into play. Many of us are fine with the ideas that I've been talking about throughout the summer. Mission. We're fine with mission. We're fine with mission so long as what it means is we open our doors and people come in and they come into what we like and what we're comfortable with and they come in and hopefully they get it if if they're lucky, but, you know, that's fine. They can come into our expectations of how things should be. We're cool with bringing people to church, but only if it looks like what we think church should look like. We're cool with people coming to our church as long as they get how they should dress how loud they should be, how loud their kids should be, or how they should vote. The idea that maybe we should put that stuff aside to reach others is crazy, isn't it? Maybe in this season, it's, this is the best way to think about it. It's as if Paul were saying to the Democrats or Republicans, I became like one so that I could reach them and win them. 
I became like them. For urban culture, I became as, as if I were raised in urban culture to win urban culture. For the valley farmer, I became like a valley farmer to win the valley farmer. And some of you are right now thinking, this sounds nuts, but listen to me. <laughs> if you insist upon your cultural preferences, if you insist upon your preferences for how things should be to accomplish mission, that means deep down, you probably believe that it's your culture, it's your preferences that make you right. If anyone could say that it was their culture that made them right, it would be Paul. Because his culture was shaped by God. <laughs> like God told them, do these things. And so he's like, I guess we should do those things. And if anyone could say, these are the things that will make you right, if you just do the cultural behaviors, the preferences that we have, God will like you, it would be Paul. But Paul says, even that culture is negotiable. What makes us right is not our preferences, our culture, our particular peccadilloes. It is Jesus. So just as much as we can't earn our way to God with our individual morality, so we can't earn our way to God with our corporate morality. Our corporate expectations. Well, I, this, is the way, this is the way people are supposed to, I don't know, uh, behave in a public space or vote or do whatever. Our rightness what the Bible calls our righteousness is found in Jesus or it is found nowhere. Here's where this hits the fan because some of you are like, okay, whatever, that's not really practical for me. Well, here's the thing. If you can't lay aside your cultural preferences and practices to see someone else come to Jesus, can I tell you something? You are enslaved to them. You're enslaved to them. You think you're being free, but you're not. You're, you're enslaved to them. Just like Paul told Peter in Galatians Chapter 2, one of the other letters he wrote. He said, we know that we are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus alone. Jesus alone. So we call others to do the same. Our primary identity cannot be white, black, or Asian, urban, suburban, liberal, conservative, whatever. If you have faith in Christ, your identity is in Christ. In everything else. Everything else. Within the bounds of the law of Christ is something we can give up to see others encounter Jesus. Now, I also want to point out this overwhelming passion. Because think about it. How do you get to the point where you're willing to say, I have become all things to all people so that in every way I might win some, I might save some? How do you get to that point? Because listen, I know you're probably not there. Can I be honest with you? Neither am I. So how do you get there? Because what, what we're tempted to do right now, if we're not in that place, and my guess would be most of us are not, is what we're tempted to do right now is either fake it or to bathe ourselves in shame. Right? We can either fake it or bathe ourselves in shame. And so let me suggest another option. The option would be the gospel of Jesus. Because here's the thing. You can try and will yourself to more passion. You can try that. You can will yourself to enough passion to see more people come to know Jesus but I don't think you're going to get there. What will probably happen is you will get very dutiful. You will set a certain agenda for how you're going to do this. You're going to have a formula in front of you. And when your formula doesn't work, you're going to get angry. You're going to get angry either at God, those you're trying to reach, because they won't come along. Why can't they just get it? Or both. Probably both. The passion that Paul says here, I, can become, I have become all things for all people. So that in every way, that kind of passion doesn't come from effort. 
It comes from grace. You see, Jesus said that the one who has been forgiven much loves much. What I see in my own life, maybe you're like me, what I see in my own life is that when my zeal for seeing people come to know Jesus wanes, and it does, it's often, that often coincides with me believing that I'm probably not that bad. And God's grace really isn't that amazing. Because you see, this strategy isn't crazy if you actually grasp the gospel. If you actually believe that in your neediness, all that you really truly need has been provided in Jesus, then what you give up to see others hear about it is very small. If you actually believe that God's acceptance of you is secure, not in your behaviors, not in your preferences, but in Jesus and in Him alone, then those preferences, those practices, those personal moralities that we all cling to, they don't matter as much. And if you really believe that there was nothing you could do to make yourself right before God, nothing that you could do to warrant His love for you, that there is nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with anyone else, and nothing wrong with anyone else that's not wrong with you, then no one is further from the God who saved you, the God who transformed you, the God who loved you, than you were. And that is where this passion comes from. If you don't believe that yet, if you haven't fully grasped that, then please don't go share the gospel with people. Because let me tell you, like, you are going to really struggle with sharing what you don't have. It's kind of hard. But if you get it, your life hidden in Christ, how can you not share it with everything at your disposal? So lastly, let me try and get a little more specific. I'm not great at specifics, but let me get a little more specific with a contextualized gospel, because here's the reality. Every presentation of the gospel of Jesus is contextualized. What I mean by contextualized is put in a certain framework so that certain people can believe it, understand it, get it, right? Now, if you're working on our Friendship Day team, you know what this is about because you're contextualizing a gospel to be able to be shared with children ages, whatever the age range is, okay? It's a pretty broad range, but it's still kids. If you work with our Holy Cross Kids team, you know the same thing, and you don't even realize that's what you're doing. You're contextualizing. You're taking the gospel, and you're shaping it so that it can best... uh, be understood by a certain group of people. Uh, we have a few people who, who have been overseas in, in missions work in this congregation. And, and that's the same thing. They learn for a while how to, how to contextualize the gospel to folks in different cultures, in, in different ways of doing things. Every gospel presentation is contextualized. The very fact that I'm preaching in English means that I am contextualizing this for my audience. That and that I don't know Spanish. Like, those are the two things that means, Okay. The fact that our music here in this church is done with acoustic guitars, with thick vocal harmonies, is a contextualization of the faith. The fact that we sing more contemporary worship songs and and retuned hymns than we do traditional hymn tunes is a contextualization. Now, for those of us who are really comfortable here, we need to hear this clearly. This is not the way to do church. And I helped write all of it, right? This is not the way to do church. This is not the way to preach the gospel. And the moment it becomes, the way we do things becomes a hindrance 
to helping people encounter, know, and show Jesus, no matter how beloved it is, we will dump it. Just need you to hear that. However, what we cannot dump is the content of the gospel. What we cannot dump are the ways in which God has said, this is the way I want to be worshipped. The kind of life that honors our king. So let me be very clear about something. You are not contextualizing by sinning. You are sinning. Right? Paul doesn't say, I became weak. He says, I became like the weak. He doesn't say, I became as if the law didn't matter. He says, I became as if I were not under the law. Though I am under the law of Christ. Like he's not saying you, you can contextualize the gospel by sinning. That's not contextualizing, that's sinning. But if you go to where people are who are unreached with the gospel, if you hang out there, make friends there, and share the gospel in a language they understand with concepts that they get, you are contextualizing. So here's the, here's the thing. And I hope for some of you, you probably recognize this. What Paul's talking about here is nothing less than what Jesus did. Paul's not doing anything less than what Jesus did. God the Son is fully God. Second person of the Trinity. But he took to himself a human nature. But when he took to himself a human nature, he didn't lose his godness. So somehow he ceased to be God. But for the work of redemption to happen, he had to take on something that he wasn't. And what's more, he didn't become a generic person. It's not like Jesus became this generic ubermensch, right? This, this, this weird superman. No, he didn't. He became a very specific person. He became a man. He became a man of the first century. He became a Jewish man of the first century. He became a Jewish man of the first century who understood the phrases, the cultural stories, and the, the hopes of those that he spoke to. And he revealed himself to them in in ways that would particularly speak to them. Because they knew about vineyards, and about sheep, and about shepherds, and about lost things like coins and sons. And so they got it. And when we do the same, we aren't giving up the gospel. We're giving it out. We're giving it out so that others can encounter Jesus, know Jesus, and show Jesus as only they can. Would you pray with me? Father, as we, as we ponder these things, the reality is, is that uh, the reason why Paul has to say this is because it is so counterintuitive to us. Because we like our comfort we like the way th- we like things. And so, Lord, if we are to get out of that, to go take the gospel to others, whether that is like across the street or across the world, we're going to need for you to inflame our hearts. We're going to need you to flame our hearts, not just for others, but for you. How great you are. Because we will always commend that which we cherish. And to commend using this strategy, the strategy that's not just Paul's strategy, it was was Jesus' strategy. Lord, that's going to take us cherishing you in a way that we never have before. And so we ask that you would do that. You would show us our need for grace and that you have provided all of it in Jesus. Whether we're in here for the first time or just 
we, we've, been, we've been coming to this church or a church here in the gospel for as long as we can remember. By your spirit, help us to cherish you more than our preferences and our comforts so that we might see others come to know you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.